0: We want to welcome those that are watching online. We realize it's kind of chilly out, so some uh, may have decided to stay home and watch from the comfort of their homes. There's other people that are watching literally around places in the world, and we want to welcome them as well. Here at GBC, we're going to be starting a new series in the new year on generosity, and it's one of our core values at GBC. We want to understand what the heart of God is. Because where your heart is, that is where your treasure is. So were the words of Jesus. But also we have to understand where our heart is, where my heart is, where your heart is in cooperation with that. Now this series is a precursor to one that I'm going to be doing on after on relationships. Because generosity plays into our relationships so deeply. And it's how we treat each other. And that impacts how we treat people who we live with and people around us that we don't know. So we're going to be engaged in a series and hearing stories of what God's up to, both in our congregation and in our world. But being a follower of Jesus, we understand we're defined by relationships. We're defined by a relationship with Christ and each other and those outside of the kingdom of God. And that relationship in Christ is why we exist, It's why we're called the body of Christ. And then out of that why, what we do and how we do it is critical and crucial in effect to our witness and our influence in our culture. Now we're going to be looking at a series of verses. But before we do that, there's some basic premises that we need to understand. You've heard me say these before, but I want to review them really quickly. Here they are. First is, everything is God's. When you look at the word in Genesis 1 to Revelation, everything was created by him and for him. So everything is God's. We are not owners, we are stewards of what God has given to us. And that key shift alone will dictate how we treat what God gives us. And then, third, we have to understand that we are defined by who we are, we're not defined by our income. We're not defined by our gender. We're not defined by our jobs. We're not defined by our events. We are not defined by our past sins. We are created in the image of God. We are sons and daughters of the living God. And our value comes from that identity, not what we do. I love one of the verses that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Here's what he says. For consider your calling, brothers, And you can say sisters there as well. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many powerful. Not many were noble birth. Which means you just didn't make a good impression in the world. People didn't notice you when you went by. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not That's a nice way of saying even nobodies. People that think they're nothing or other people that think you're nothing. To bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. I mean, that's what we call an eternal perspective. That's what we call worshiping to an audience of one. And if we live with this mindset then we realize that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing, as Paul writes in Ephesians. But if we live with the other mindset, the world mindset, and if we don't feel blessed, then we have to ask ourselves the question, how did I get here in my mind? Because I started believing some lies, and I invited them into my life, and it led me to a place that God does not want us to be. First Thessalonians chapter 4. I love what Paul says here. and We're going to be talking about Macedonia, and he re- refers to it here. So, But here's what he says in verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. I mean, it's a nice way of saying that when you talk about the kind of love that we're to exhibit, and we're going to talk about in relationships, It's something that we cannot humanly manufacture. It is by spiritual design. It's when we come into relationship with Christ and we engage in the Holy Spirit that he literally teaches us how to live beyond our ability to love. So that's what he's talking about here. For that indeed is what you were doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. I said, we're going to talk about Macedonia in a moment. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Kind of raise the bar. Then he goes on to say this and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So what you see here is a picture of what it means to steward, to be generous of, he talks about love, work, living with other people, and hope. I mean, this is the practical application of generosity. And when we steward and realize that we have a generous God and he's generous with us, we seek to live in that way among all people. And as we are blessed, we bless them. But if we follow the world's value if we listen to all the voices out there, then our perceptions will be very different. Take the issue of equality and fairness. We hear a lot about that. But who do you compare yourself to? Now, if you do it like the world does it and everything around it, you're kind of going to get messed up and you're going to believe the lies that come to us. This past, well, I guess the past two weeks ago, I was given a book by Tom Doyle called Standing in the Fire. And I read it, and my wife read it. Now my brother and his wife are reading it. And by the way, I do need to talk to the person who gave it to me, because I didn't know if I was supposed to give it back. <laughs> right now it's making its way around, so if you want it back, see me afterwards. But the book is about situations in the Middle East and how God at work. And after you read that book, you say, "Fair, what they're going through and how they live both spiritually and economically and physically. And the book was both humbling and humiliating. And right after that, I read another book by Christine Kane that talks about her A21 ministry, rescuing those from the sex slave trade business and how she uses the word, capital W, Jesus, and the word, the word of God, to speak value and worth back into their lives. And after reading those books, I was humbled, and I'm going to use the word embarrassed instead of humiliated, at what divides us in our American churches. I mean, there are people facing situations that we can never get beyond the perception of fairness. What they go through is unthinkable. So the question of generosity then is, how do we live well in the midst of chaos? That's the question we're going to try to deal with over this series. How do we live well in the midst of chaos? Take Genesis 1. God spoke and brought order out of the chaos. He literally used words. Jesus is called the word. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Words are important. And have you ever been curious why our speech is under attack today? We as followers of Jesus know the power of the spoken word. And that word, Jesus said, was full of grace and truth as a picture of generosity. But our culture attempts to stifle our worlds, our words through accusations of bigotry and hate. They appear to want conformity to speech of what I call untruth and lies. And our culture is not an illustration of generosity. They're not very generous. They're not very gracious. And they try to shut down anyone that disagrees with their position. Now, if we're honest, we have to confess that the church has done that in the past too. We define ourselves by sameness, not unity. Because in unity, there's incredible diversity. In unity, there's an incredible strength in the body where God gives some people the fingers and the hands and the arms and the legs and some are the heads and the eyes and ears. But we have defined ourselves by sameness and not unity. How many people know who Carson Wentz is? Okay, if you're a Philadelphia Eagles fan, you know who Carson Wentz is. Um, There was a youth that was gracious enough and generous enough to buy what is now being called the Carson Wentz t-shirt. And so he bought it to me for Christmas and said, you know what, I'm going to wear it some Sunday. I don't know whether you believe me or not, but I'm wearing it. You're probably wondering why the pastor's wearing a (laughs) t-shirt. Here's the Carson Wentz t-shirt, okay? Has an A, has a big crown of thorns for an O, and then has a one with the cross in the middle. He wears this at every press conference that he had when he wasn't hurt. And it stands for audience of one. So I'm glad the youth was listening because I use that phrase a lot. I'm not so arrogant to think that Carson Wentz has heard me use it and that's why he's wearing it. (laughs) Actually, the phrase is an old phrase out of the 15th century. But you know, Carson Wentz wears this and talks about how he plays to the glory of God. And people find that offensive. And they try to restrict his speech. Illustration this past week, he tweeted. Here's what the tweet was. Happy birthday to Mama Henley. Mama Henley is a dog, not his mom or somebody else's mom, okay? It's his dog, five years old. We've been through a lot in five years. Best dog and hunting buddy I could ask for. And there's a picture of the dog in a row of geese. One of the people tweets back, Carson, congratulations on the birthday of Mama Henley. As a friend, I wanted to quickly highlight that a man in your influential position might cause offense through the posting. Now, here's a lot about that with the shirt that he wears. Carson tweets back, appreciate that. But offensive and controversial, question mark? It's kind of like, really? Two of the main things I tweet about are Jesus and honey. That's what I'm passionate about, and that will never change. When you love something, you talk about it. Stay convicted about it. Don't worry what others think. End of tweet. This is the world we live in. They're trying to change the word. And I think they try to change our words, but they're also trying to change the word. And his name's Jesus. I want you to turn to the main text. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to be in Romans 8. Second Corinthians, chapter eight and nine, for the next several weeks, and we're going to start at verse one. And Paul's writing about a circumstance, about a particular group of Christians in Macedonia. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given through, given among the churches of Macedonia. Now, Macedonia was a region north of Greece; it's a border territory to Greece. In classical times, Macedonia was a kingdom, not a city-state. In the 4th century B.C., Macedonia was dominant power in Greece. Historians would know someone like Alexander the Great. He was the king of Macedonia. He conquered the Persian Empire. But Rome, in their conquest in 168 B.C., conquered Macedonia, and it became a Roman province in 148 B.C. The Bible mentions that Macedonia was one of the first part of Europe that was visited by Paul. So he visited, there's churches, but here's what we see in Macedonia. In verse two, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Note this about their situation. They were deep poverty. They were in rock bottom destitution. These words we're used of a beggar who had absolutely nothing and has no hope of getting anything. The term we use today is abject poverty. It's the kind of poverty that I saw and witnessed in Zimbabwe back around 2008 and 2009. They bartered to stay alive. They literally had nothing. No one owned anything. No one could buy anything. And so it was a barter system just to stay alive. Now, in Macedonia, whatever was going on, history tells us that in part, it was due to the Christian faith. That was on top of the Roman oppression. What happened in Macedonia is that if a person got convicted, they often lost their jobs. If they were a business owner and they were saved by the grace of God, then other people refused to do business with them. There were cases In situations where in a business, they refused to do business with someone else because there was idols involved. So they were in death. They were destitute. That's the picture we need to create. However, their circumstances did not hinder them from being generous. And they were being generous towards the church in Jerusalem that was under persecution. So here's the formula that we get from this verse. Great affliction plus deep poverty plus grace equals abundant joy and a wealth of generosity. (laughs) Now, I can guarantee you that the world's formula today isn't equated like that. But in the kingdom of God, we have to understand that generosity is not based upon our circumstances. And there's two more dynamics to this equation. Look at verse 3. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. So here's what the new equation looks like. Great affliction plus deep poverty plus grace plus enthusiasm plus sacrificially equals a pundit joy and a wealth of generosity. They literally begged Paul to take up an offering. Now, I can tell you that in my 40 years of ministry ministry, I've never had someone come and beg to take an offering. But here was a group. They gave sacrificially beyond their abilities. It was their own decision. Look at verse 5. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Note the progression. It's important. We'll talk about that in a moment. They gave themselves to the Lord, critical importance. That's where we start. And then, once they gave themselves to the Lord, God's will, they gave themselves to other people. Look at verse 6. Accordingly, we urge Titus, that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, Paul moves it to a different level. Here we're talking about economic, giving and offering. I'm sure it was just not money, but it was probably food and other kinds of things. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove the earnestness of others, that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Here's the first point I want to make. Generosity is a lifestyle. Note the phrase again that I told you about in verse 7, that you excel in everything. So he's talking about an offering over here. But then he says, listen, it's about your faith. It's about how you talk to each other. It's how you talk about each other. It's about your knowledge. It's, it's what you put between your ears. It's what you choose to see. It's what you choose to read. Earnestness is a term for business. It's how you run your business. It's the way you love. So excelling in everything, generosity is a lifestyle. It just is not dependent upon our checkbooks. It's a way of life. And as Paul says... It's voluntary. It's supposed to be an act of love. Not a command. And people watch. At my previous church, we were adding a rather large addition. And it was during the recession of seven and eight, And the cost was around $10 million. And as my habit, I'd go out and talk to the workers and see what they're doing and I had a conversation with one of the concrete workers and he thanked me. He says, listen, he goes, I'm glad you guys decided to build. Cause uh, you know what? We wouldn't have had a job if we weren't doing this. And so he's expressing his appreciation. And I told him it's one of the reasons we did that. You know, we got a congregation full of builders and they said, if we can do something to help the cause, we will. But then he looked at me and says, he goes, I got a question. He goes, so how do you pay for this? He goes, you kind of, and he used the word tax. He goes, do you tax all your congregation? saying, well, listen, everybody has to give us like X amount of dollars? I says, no. He goes, well, how do you raise the money for it? He says, well, people just give it. He goes, what do you mean people just give it? I says, we take an offering and people just put it in. He goes, you're absolutely kidding. He says, no. And he goes, and you're going to get enough? I said, I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) But this was a person that had no church background. You know, we call them second generation out of the church. I mean, it was completely foreign to them that a group of people would get together and voluntarily be generous and sacrificial for a cause, something like this. So understand generosity is a lifestyle. Number two, we often get caught up in the money issue, but money's not the issue. Our heart is. Jesus says, Where your heart is, there will be your what? Your treasure. Stating that another way is our circumstances do not keep us from being generous. If you're not generous with what you have, you will never be generous with what you do not have or think you should have. And again, we got to think beyond economics. But economics is where we get stuck. And again, I think if we're claiming to be generous, it's going to show up in our economics, how we think about money and what we do with money. But this story is common. I've heard this before, but it happened to an individual that I knew. And uh, this individual was semi-retired. He claimed he never had enough, and so he kept working. And I got a chance to take him to Africa. And after being moved by the poverty there, he started sending his tithe to an individual in Africa. And then he got caught up in a scam. Remember the emails you used to get, and they usually were from Africa saying that if you send like, you know, $1,000, you'll get $20 million back. Anybody remember those? Well, he sent money over. And he kept sending more money. And he kept sending more money. He literally emptied his bank accounts. He lost his house because he mortgaged the entire thing. On top of that, he had power of attorney over his mother. She was still living. He emptied out her estate. We had a number of interventions with this individual. But his kids and his friends, he refused to listen. He literally gave close to a half million dollars away. His reason, here's what he said. He only wanted the $20 million so he could give half of it to those in Africa. Now think about that statement. He just spent half a million, he could have sent two hundred and fifty thousand over. But what a sweet deal if I get twenty and give ten away. <laughs> he wasn't generous with what he had and he got caught up in a scam that somehow he thought he might get rich and disguise it. That somehow he wanted to be generous. So listen. It's not about your circumstances. It's not about how much you have or you don't have. It's really taking what God gives. And again, hearing the words of Paul saying, listen, in all things. You know, are you stingy with your words? Were you harsh with your words? What about your attitudes? Do you come alongside? Or do you stand at a distance and are critical about?" It really comes down to the question of you know what offends you, because generosity kind of cleans out the offense in our hearts, doesn't it? Because why? Well, here's the third here's the third principle. Our examples who? I heard a few people say it. <laughs> our examples who? Jesus. See. He says, they first gave themselves to the Lord. He was rich. He was God. He became poor. He was man. He did this for you. No other reason. See, the problem in our day and age when we start talking about generosity, we don't look to Jesus. We get caught up in comparisons. We start looking at everybody else and each other. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, uh, listen to what Paul says in this context. He says, not that we dare classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, okay? So you got one group saying, look at us. It's kind of like the Pharisee who stood in front of the church one day praying. He says, Lord, you know, look at everything I do. You know, I tithe. And he says, I thank you. I'm not like the guy in the back. See, that's, that's not generosity. But when we measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, what's the next phrase there? They're without understanding. He says they're clueless. They have no idea what generosity looks like. They have no idea what a follower of Jesus looks like. But we don't believe this because this is exactly what we do. As soon as we start the language of I deserve or I should have, or as soon as we start thinking, why isn't everyone like me? Or if only people were generous as me. And you see the subtle shift? When we compare ourselves with anyone other than Christ, generosity will fade in our hearts and minds. And I will guarantee you, when we start comparing ourselves with each other, we will be offended, we will be wounded, we'll play the victim, we'll start saying life isn't fair. Now there's a parable that I preach on, and it really kind of illustrates what I'm talking about, because every time I preach this parable, people say, you know, I don't like this it's not fair. How could Jesus not be fair? Well, their fairness is defined by their worldview, not by Jesus' worldview. Now, some of you may have guessed the story. There's a businessman in Matthew 20 that hired workers early in the morning, and they agreed upon a wage. So at six o'clock, you came, you started working. He hired more at nine, he hired more at 12, he hired more at three, then he hired more at five. At the end of the day, six o'clock, he begins paying people and he does it backwards. The people that worked for one hour, he gave them the same ways that he agreed those that were gonna work 12 hours. And he did the same for those at three, at 12, at nine. And you can imagine the workers that worked all day when they came to the business owner, they're thinking, you know what? I'm gonna get a lot more. And they got exactly what was agreed upon. And they did what you and I would do. They sat there and said, wait a minute, this ain't fair. And the business owner, which is illustrating Jesus at this point, says, didn't I give you what was promised? And they said, yes, but it's not fair. And of course, we spiritualize this and miss the impact of generous grace. Because God's trying to say, listen, grace isn't fair. And grace is something that we choose to give. Not based upon conditions, not based upon worth. It's just given as a grace. That's generosity. Now, Barna does a lot of research on generosity and shifts in lifestyles and attitudes. And he noticed that there's one generation, they're called the boomers, that's my generation, that it's all about money. When you talk about generosity, it's all about how much you give away. He says the next generation which is now the millennials, they just want to take money out of the equation. And they say it's all about service. It's what we do for Jesus, not what we give away. Now, I just want to say in every generation, it's about everything. It's about our money. It's about what we do. It's about what we say. It's about how we think. And we've got to ask, do the results coincide with being a follower of Jesus? But here's what's interesting about the survey. He said that giving money is used by all as a luxury and, not a, and a nice thing to do and not as a necessity. Now, let me say that again. In this thing, he says, giving money is viewed by all as a luxury and a nice thing to do, but not as a necessity. Now, when you start using the word necessity, there's two ways to view this. Necessity is I have to. That's what a teenager says when he says, go clean your room up. Then there's one necessity that is compelled by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We call one the law and the other the law of love. And see if our example is Jesus Christ. Our desire is to give sacrificially with joy and enthusiasm. And we give ourselves first to the Lord. And then out of the will of God because we are to take care of each other, we give. So here's a critical question I want you to think about in this series. How do you define prosperity? This world? Or the world to come? See, how you define prosperity will drive your worldview and your sense of everything. And let me ask another question What if we lived in such a way that we looked for opportunities to be more generous? What if we woke up every single day and that was part of our agenda? How would that alter our minds and our hearts and things that we say and things that we do and how we choose to live? I want you to write those two questions down somewhere. I want you to think about them. I want you to pray about them. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up because we're going to close with a song. As they do that, I want to talk about next Sunday evening because we're going to be doing something that really we haven't done for quite a long time. But at 6 o'clock in the evening, we're going to have a prayer time here. And we're going to pray about some things. We're going to pray the mind and heart of God and how GBC aligns itself with that. So we're, we're not going to come here and sing. It's not going to be a service. We're going to pray. And we're going to pray for those living outside the kingdom of God. We're going to pray for us seeing and entering in where God is at work. So I'm going to invite you to that. It's open for everyone. 6 o'clock next Sunday evening right here in the auditorium. Right now, we're going to sing about the generosity of Christ and our response if we choose to offer our hearts completely to him. Let's stand as we sing.